Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to The Voyages, a Star Trek podcast about the Kirks and their crews from the original series and the Kelvin films. I'm Allie Black, and hosting with me today, as always, is Chris Hill, and a nice warm welcome, Bill Williams. Hello, guys. Hi. Hello, Allie. It's nice to be here with you. So don't forget to like and subscribe and leave us a comment. To keep up to date on all the news and updates from The Voyages, be sure to follow The Voyages Pod on Twitter and Facebook. Also, subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This week, we're going to be learning a little from Bill about his Star Trek history, and then we'd like to get into some essential original series with the motion picture. So, Bill, let's get started. Why don't you give us a brief rundown of how Star Trek has been in your life today? Thank you, Allie. Thank you, Chris. Well, to get started, for me, my first entry point into the entire world of Star Trek came in 1979 with the release of the first Star Trek film. A little background about myself. I was born in 1966 and a couple of weeks after the original series premiered. And I'd seen a few reruns here and there throughout the 1970s, you know, on different TV stations. But for me, my real entry into the entire franchise came with the first feature film and then with the books and then the magazines that came as a result of it. Then, of course, the feature films that came out throughout. And then when I was in college, we had a station back home where I lived in Mississippi, WDBD TV 40, and that played reruns of the original Star Trek every night at six o'clock. That's when I really, really discovered what the original series was all about. And I learned about the characters. I learned about their situations and their relationships and so forth. And I really began to discover what the stories were about at that point. From there, I began to follow many of the different series from the ground up with the beginning of The Next Generation in 1987, and then Deep Space Nine, and Voyager, and Enterprise, and, and their feature films, respectively. In 2001, I came on board this website called trekweb.com as a media editor and columnist. I wrote a number of articles about different aspects of the Star Trek franchise, and in time, I became their book reviewer and media reviewer as well. In 2006, I contributed material to Pocket Books, Voyages of Imagination, the Star Trek Fiction Companion. Uh, there was an addendum in the back of the book about the Star Trek Fiction timeline that traced all of the novels, a number of the comic books, and all the feature films and television series in one comprehensive timeline at that point with a group called the Star Trek Timeliners. And I'm still part of that group to this day on Facebook. And in 2010, I was invited to take part in it press tour in San Francisco for the launch of the Star Trek Online mobile online role-playing group. And I was able to conduct tours with the creators and developers of the online game and have a number of videos and commentaries posted on trekweb.com and on YouTube as well. So for me, this has been a lifelong experience and exploration of what Star Trek is all about. That's awesome. That is absolutely awesome. I was saying to Bill earlier how I think it is really incredible for a lot of us that have been Star Trek fans for most of our lives, even if it's in the background or if it's in the forefront, just how much it does affect and and influence our daily lives. And, And I think that's just wonderful. Exactly. And you even look at the technology today and see how much today's tech has been influenced by Star Trek. 
Mm-hmm. And I think also that is a nice transition to talk about the motion picture too, because here we have grown up, some of us with reruns, some of us with watching the original for the first time. However, to me, it's come full circle in 1979 when the motion picture did come out because it's been in our lives and now we get to see a little bit more of a mature Captain Kirk coming back to the Enterprise after being behind the desk, so to speak, as an admiral. And, and it's a really nice transition into the later years. I mean, when you think about it, Star Trek, the motion picture is one of the more you know important moments in the entire franchise history because they've been working on trying to develop a return to Star Trek for several years. I mean, they went back and forth. Is it going to be a TV series? Is it going to be a feature film? Is it going to be a TV movies or what have you? And they kept going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with concepts. And how is Kirk going to mature? How is Spock going to mature? How are all the characters going to mature? Who's going to come aboard? And they went at it back and forth for like five years and finally decided, okay, well, let's do this Star Trek Phase Two series. And they developed the script for Star Trek Phase Two, And that was going to be their big launch, their big returning point to the series. And they were going to ironically do a fourth network, which was going to be a Paramount network. And, of course, that became the precursor to the Paramount network that we had. And then that's also the precursor to Paramount Plus. Mm-hmm. So they were going to look at that as their big return, their big lunch, but they were going to do it without Leonard Nimoy. And without Leonard Nimoy, how could this work without Spock back? But one big thing happened, which changed the direction of Star Trek Phase Two, and that was Star Wars. With the launch of Star Wars in 1977, that said, we got to do this as a film. So even though they had done all that test footage and what have you, they said, okay, now we've got to turn this into a big feature film. And that's when the Paramount said, let's throw all the money we can. Let's do this. And it took them another two years before they could finally get that to the screen. And even then, it still seemed very big. And look what they gave us. I know. The visual effects were light years better than the series. And Jerry Goldsmith's music became such a benchmark for what the Star Trek film scores could be over the next 10 to 15 years. And it was big. It was beautiful. It was romantic. It didn't have the popcorn flavor of Star Wars. It didn't have the mystery of, say, Close Encounters. And it wasn't cheesy, you know, like some of the knockoffs that occurred at that time and some of Roger Corman's knockoff films. It was a film that made you think. And even at 13 years old, it made me think as well about what life could be like, about the future and everything. I was going to put that in for my final thought, Bill, but when you bring that up, it it is really good. It's got everything in a good science fiction movie. It's got adventure. It's got action. For the time, it had excellent graphics. You could sit down with your family and watch it, not have the little kids get scared of, of a scary science fiction show. And for me, I love Star Wars, but for me, it's more of a space fantasy versus science fiction where we get the more realness from Star Trek, I guess you could say. I'm kind of the oddball here since I am the, the youngest of the three here now. TMP was sort of one of the ones where it took me forever just to sit through and not either fall asleep or get distracted by it. I have seen it all the way through without doing either either of those. Time's also given me the contextual way of how things were, were made there in, in the 70s and early 80s where, you know, it was more slower paced, but it, we didn't have some of those action scenes, especially there in the first act with the Klingons attacking the V'ger probe. One of the most exciting moments for me was when they discovered that V'ger was actually one of the lost Voyager craft, because I've always been interested in the journey of Voyager. And recently when they got back in touch with like in communication with it, I always thought that that was such a special touch that they actually could incorporate something that people could relate to on a realistic level 
into a science fiction story. And that's the big thing about Star Trek. They relied on the scientific aspects of it. That's why they had to consult with NASA to make sure that they got the scientific aspects right. And having the Voyager probe and, of course, the launch of the first two Voyager probes into outer space and seeing what's going on out there as we look at it, you know, in our real world and seeing this tangible touch towards the real world, you know, in the future. And then it comes back to us again. Of course, at that point, in the context of the story, you know, it comes back as a threat, wiping everything out. And it's like, how do we access this information? How do we get to see that we're not a threat, that it's not a threat to us, we're not a threat to it? How do we get that across to it? So it's a very, very, very good touch. And it's an interesting concept to think about because it is set forward in the future from where we're at today, how far Voyager could potentially go out into interstellar space, or what could potentially happen to the Voyager probe. I mean, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it it would be an interesting thing to think about. Right. And then, of course, the novels have explored that in further detail. And then Gene Roddenberry had his own theories about Voyager. And then when you look at that aspect of Spock's spacewalk, and then he sees what looks to be the representation of Voyager's home planet. And then Roddenberry later said in an interview that he speculated that could have been the home world of the Borg, that the Borg may have assimilated the Voyager probe and created the entire vessel to send it back to Earth. That would be fun. I love the Borg. But I'm also a big Voyager fan, so... Actually, later on tonight, Kyle and I over on The Expanse, we're going to be kind of starting our little Borg mini-series stuff, finishing up with uh, Regeneration. Oh, nice. We are going to start watching Enterprise from the beginning. My husband's really gotten into it lately, too. So we're going to look forward to your podcast to supplement our viewing. And I myself am going through a rewatch of the original series myself between Blu-rays and Netflix as well. So that way I get to watch the entire series all once again, this time from beginning to end. So that way I can I can really appreciate it. Get once again what the series was all about, having not seen it in so many years. One of the best things about doing this podcast, honestly, has been rewatching the original series. Mm-hmm. It's, I just love it. It reconnects us back to a simpler time in our youth and simpler times in our lives and even simpler times in production and broadcasting and what have you to see how far along we have come, you know, in 50, almost 60 years between the original series and the current crop of Star Trek productions that are being made. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But for me, the entire thing about the first Star Trek, the motion picture, is as much as I enjoy it, at times it does feel cold. It's very cold. It is, like you said, Chris, at times slow moving. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help matters, you know, that we had the extended version in the 80s, you know, with like 10, 15 minutes of footage added back to it. The only reason is they added all that action and character footage back in because the, the visual effects just took away from it all. But when you look at Robert Wise's director's cut of the film in 2001, you find that there is a much nicer balance between the two. The visual effects are there, the music is there, the story is there, but the characters are back. Their motivations are back now. Spock's motivation is back now, and it feels more complete. So for me, of the three cuts of the film, the director's cut is my go-to version. I'll have to watch the director's cut. I think I just have the theatrical cut. I'd have to see which one I actually have the physical copy of. Earlier today, when uh, before we got on, I watched the free version that was on Prime, which was the, the theatrical. Full honesty, I did find that the scene was seemingly long when they were driving with him and, and Scotty to get to the Enterprise when they were in their little capsule. I felt that that was a very long scene driving around the whole Enterprise. But 
find yourself someone in life that looks at you the way Kirk looked at the Enterprise. I mean, that was a beautiful moment. And I absolutely adored when Spock came back onto the Enterprise. Just how everybody on the bridge, like Yuhura and Chekhov and everybody, they just kind of rallied around him. And even though he was still in his mopey teenager phase, I'm not talking to anybody. It was a really warming moment just to see that original core group of people just celebrate him and happy to see him. And it was a very uplifting moment. It was. I mean, to have Spock return and not have him replaced by just another nondescript Vulcan. I mean, that's when you really felt that the film was now complete, that they're back to form now. The group is back together again. The class is back together again. And we can get on with telling the story. Yeah, that's how I felt about it, too. It was nice. And and it was good to see Kirk and Scotty going to the Enterprise together. It was a nice moment. And I absolutely love Bones and having his grumpiness come back onto the ship when he was still with his beard and everything. I just, that was such a good moment. I affectionately call him Disco Bones. But you have a necklace like he wore too, don't you, Chris? I'd have to dig in the closet, but I think so. <laughs> the fashion of this movie was not my favorite. I will say that. Oh yeah, that's that's definitely one. Because you can tell even in the space dock sequence, well, not not the space dock sequence, but the Starfleet command sequence where, where Kirk comes back and everybody's walking around. You can tell it, especially with all the background extras and everybody, you can tell that the fashion is very dated. Mm-hmm. You have to expect somebody to walk around in bell bottoms and high heels. Come on, I do that every weekend. I don't know what you guys do. but <laughs> One thing I did like was the little uh, life support thing that they have, you know, that relates to medical. To me, that kind of seemed like a callback to the animated series with the life belts. More of a compact, you know, just fit right on the the uniform and not, you know, just a belt. I think we have to do a couple podcast episodes on some of the animated episodes. It's been too long. I don't know which streaming service has the um, animated series on there right now. I got my copy of the animated series back. I've been finding it out of all places, a Dollar General store for like five bucks. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. So when I saw that it was coming out on Blu-ray and I'm like... There's nothing new on the Blu-ray and everything. I was like, I'm just going to keep my $5 DVD that I got at the dollar store. I can't remember if I have it on Netflix or Crave here in Canada, but it is on one. It is on uh, CBS All Access here in the States. Okay, so then it would be on Crave here. So I'd have to pull out my DVDs and watch them again. I did that a few years back and I enjoyed it. So I'd have to pull that out again and, and watch them again. So I'm kind of overdue for a rewatch of the animated series. The one thing I enjoyed the most about... The original series and why I think it's really essential to the original series viewing is I like seeing Kirk a little older, a little more mature, a little wiser. I've always loved Captain Kirk. I have found that he never really fit the stereotype of the womanizer or the rule breaker. I mean, yeah, he was a little out there and he was adventurous and dangerous and reckless a little bit, but I don't think the stereotypes really fit him as well as him being a very good captain. And I love seeing a little bit more maturity. I like that he still has things to learn because he did have a lot of development throughout the film with his uh, commanding officer taking over command of the Enterprise and competition between the two of them. But he learned from it, he grew from it, and he was still that Kirk that we know and love. And another thing that really, really stood out about the film was Jerry Goldsmith's music. Because Jerry Goldsmith really gave us what I consider to be the definitive Star Trek film score. I mean, we've had some great ones from James Horner. We had a really good one from Cliff Eidelman. And even Michael Giacchino in his three films for the J.J. Abrams reboot has delivered some good music. But for me, Jerry Goldsmith's film score, you know, for this one, for the motion picture, really, really is the benchmark for what Star Trek music can be all about. It's big, it's sweeping, it's adventurous, a little bit mysterious, because in that point in time, 
he was also doing similar music for Alien yeah. as well. And if you look, if you compare the scores he did for, for Star Trek and Alien, there's also a, very much a bit of mystery and uncertainty that's out there, even thematic similarities in places at times. An excellent example of that is the scene that you described for us, Allie, when Kirk and Scotty take their journey from the space site to the Enterprise. And the film just relies on the music and on the visuals to tell the story. It's sweeping, it's beautiful, it's hopeful, it's optimistic, as it should be. The music honestly really makes or breaks moments for me in movies. And, and yeah, I agree. The music was simply stunning in that whole movie. And that's one of the centerpieces of the entire film. Mm-hmm. I've started to notice that a little bit more here recently, too, because I've been on a Hamilton kick the past two days, at least. And in that, you've got music all the way throughout, except for that last scene where the duel is between Hamilton and Burr. There's no music. It's just acapella. So you can definitely tell, you know, where, where the music, you know, helps it out and where it doesn't. And I actually watched the little special that they did, you know, after they had released it on Disney Plus and Lin-Manuel Miranda was saying, yeah, you know, I'd pretty much put everything I could think of into the music except for silence. And it just came to me, you know, one day, you know, while I was up before everybody else was in the house. I was like, you know what, that's that's how I'm going to end it is with no music, just the words. That's a very good way of looking at it, Chris. I'd seen Hamilton for the first time myself when it came on this summer, and I was just totally floored by how good it was and by how musical it was. As Ali said, music can make or break a film or a TV series or a stage production because that is an essential storyteller. Yeah. For me, it's mostly the opening credits. If they don't hook me with a good music and a good intro... I may not have interest in the actual episode, regardless of what it is or how good it might be. And the DVD for the director's cut, you know, Jerry Goldsmith said that he'd already composed like 30 minutes of music already. And they're looking at him like, do you have a theme for this film? And he's like, what theme? And you go back and listen to some of the alternate tracks on this last version of the CD. You can definitely hear there's no theme. So he had to go back and rescore the music and put, put back a theme. And without the theme, all you've got is straight adventure music, and it becomes just a straight adventure. But the theme has got to hook you. Like you I agree, Allie. The theme has got to hook you. It's got to draw you in, bring you in, and it's got to keep you there. Because without it, without the themes for the Enterprise, without the themes for the Klingons, without Kirk's theme, Spock's theme, Ailea's theme, everybody's theme, you're not going to have a story. And actually, that brings me to another discussion topic that I'm curious to know what you guys think about. How do you think it would be different if the Kelvin Kirk was in that particular spot in his life versus the prime timeline that we see? Because Kirk was a little different in the Kelvin movies than he was in the original series and the original movies, obviously. It kind of made me think last night, how would he have been different? How would he have acted with his crew? How would he have matured? Well, when you look at the development of Jim Kirk in Star Trek 09, he was more of a hothead. He was more impulsive. He was flying on the seat of his pants, and he was a little bit too cocky for himself. But once it got to that point in the film where Captain Pike was gone and Spock was gone, he finally sits down in the chair, and Uhura says to him, I hope you know what you're doing. And he says, so do I. That's when you start really seeing the maturity develop in Captain Kirk's character. That's when you really start seeing him become the kind of leader that he needs to be that and he's not channeling or aping William Shatner he's starting to become his own person so 
if, if you had transplanted the two, he wouldn't have known what to do. He would not have known how to handle this. He was like, what do I do? I'm flying by the seat of my pants here. Yeah, actually, I think he would have gotten the Enterprise vaporized right away. <laughs> so there has to be that maturity there. And that's what made the Kelvin versus Kirk better, you know, by the time, you know, you pushed along in the, in the rest of the first film. Was he still cocky throughout the films? Yes. But that just simply meant he still has a lot of growing up to do. Here you have a more grown up, like you said, more mature Kirk who had been out there. And he told Decker, I've been out there. I've seen all this. You haven't. That's why he made the power play to get back in the center seat and stay there because he knew what to do. He'd had all of experience. I liked that dynamic that him and Decker had. I did like how they overcame it. I liked how he grew into it. And I liked how Kirk actually just took a step back and learned, especially after he was scolded by, I think it was Spock or Bones, about pushing too hard. I think it would have worked pretty well if Kirk had said, okay, I'm here with you on this trip. You're in command. I'm going to sit back. And because if you look at Star Trek II, for example, Spock was in command of the Enterprise and Kirk hesitated. He didn't want the command back. But after he talked with Spock, Spock told him, you need to do what's right. And then Kirk took command. Had Kirk had the same mentality in the first film and allowed Decker to command the Enterprise against Beecher. And then if something had happened to Decker, you know, and he said, what would you suggest doing? Then Kirk would give him the advice that he needs. I think that dynamic would have played a lot better for him. And, you know, kind of calling forward a little bit into generations with Harriman, that's sort of what it would be like, but I don't think that Decker was as green as Harriman was. Right, exactly. You look at Kirk and Harriman's relationship at the start of Generations, and it's like, uh, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And Kirk's telling him, do this, do that, do this, do that. And then finally, Harriman says, I'll go take care of this. You have the bridge. And he's finally sitting down. I was like, for a moment, yeah, I'm back. But then he says, wait a minute. This is your ship. I'll take care of this. He's telling Harriman what he needs to do. And then Kirk goes out and takes care of the problem himself because he's just there as a visitor now. You know, I really don't think that Harriman's that bad of a captain. We just saw him on his worst day ever. Right. <laughs> Especially kind of taking in the fan film of Gods and Men, you know, you can kind of see that, you know, he did grow into the captaincy of the flagship. It just took him a little bit. He got past that first day. And of course, Harriman gets a bad rap considering that he's played by the same guy who played Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. First, he killed the car, then he killed the captain. How's that for being born under a bad sign? <laughs> <laughs> So, does anybody have any final thoughts that they wanted to talk about? I do want to say that I really enjoy the upgrade that they did on the Enterprise herself. I mean, it definitely, you know, brought it forward that decade that we didn't really have. Or actually, the couple years, I should say, because the decade comes next film. Brought it into making the Enterprise more of a, a cinematic figure as opposed to just a made-for-TV type deal. I really enjoyed, you know, how they did go from, you know, the cylinders to more of the streamlined rectangles and boxes, but still kept the kept it to where you no matter where you were looking at it from, you could still see all of it. You knew it was the Enterprise. Yeah. And like I said, it was a seemingly long trip from the shuttle bay to the Enterprise with Scotty and Kirk at the beginning. But it did actually really show some beautiful angles of the Enterprise. It was a gorgeous ship for that movie. If you've seen photographs of the Phase 2 Enterprise, you see the transformation from the original series Enterprise to this Phase 2 version, which led to the development of the motion picture version. And you still see elements of the original series Enterprise and the Phase 2 version in this new upgrade version, which I think is very, very interesting. Had they gone with the Phase 2 Enterprise for the film, who knows what would have happened. 
my final takeaway from this is, you know, people are still clamoring for updated version, you know, of the director's cut because we've now got Blu-ray and HD versions of the theatrical cuts. When are we going to get an upgraded version or 4K version of the director's cut? And the answer still is we don't know because the visual effects for the director's cut were done at standard def and they were done at much lower resolution. That was just simply to bring those visual effects up to par, you know, with what was done in 1979. Not have anything like with the Star Wars special editions, you know, not have all that all that goofiness and what have you, but to bring it more online with where the film was and to have it, you know, similar to where the later films were. But do I think it's possible? Yeah, if you put in enough time and enough money. And I think there are fans who would enjoy seeing a new 4K version of the director's cut. Time will only tell. I mean, it is a visually beautiful mm -hmm. movie. Still is to this day. This show is brought to you by Holosuite Media. Computer, list other available Holosuite Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Her First Trek, a Star Trek Preview Podcast. You, have you ever heard of the Spock? No, but I'm just you're doing the hand movements, so I know exactly what it so, is. So I used to work for a guy, brilliant guy, good, good mate, who used to joke about Spocking people. Where's this guy? And it was like, if you didn't, if you didn't bust your ass in work, he was going to Spock you. Yeah. Oh, that's... Oh. I mean, nowadays, you couldn't really say that stuff. No. And you can only assume, if you put yourself in the... If you do the live long and prosper uh, gesture, you imagine, look at the hand, and if it's used in a sexual context of how one might be spocking someone. So you might be entering two different places, so to speak. I think you should edit this out. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. Well, I mean, there's no COVID-19 in 2370-something. No, but you don't know what Tuvakian germs he has. Oh, he, he might might be a carrier. I don't know. I just thought <laughs> it was gross. I would have just used the spoon. I'd he carries like... the pond far. <laughs> oh, Neelix with pond far. Neelix with pond far, <laughs> Suzanne. Why have you just made this something that's in my brain? Computer, deactivate Holosuite.